0: Welcome to The Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Strom the director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsife. We are privileged to do this conference, sponsor this conference each year with the Wrigley Institute. In the truest sense, I believe that the climate future will shape our political future. Today, in the last of our sessions, we're going to focus on local and state efforts. Let me introduce our panel. Ben Allen is a California State Senator representing the 26th Senate District, the West Side, Hollywood, Coastal, South Bay communities. He chairs the Senate's Environmental Quality Committee. Dominique Hargreaves is the Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Prior to joining the Garcetti administration, she served as L.A. Executive Director of the U.S. Green Building Council. Gary Giro was appointed L.A. County's first Chief Sustainability Officer in November of 2016. He was previously the President of the Climate Action Reserve and now serves as Vice Chair on its Board of Directors. Sydney Kamlager Kamlager was elected to the California Senate last month, representing District 30, which encompasses Central and Western Los Angeles County, and USC, her alma mater. She previously served in the State Assembly representing the 54th District. I'm going to start out with a general question that each of you can answer in turn. What is the most pressing climate change challenge California faces in the coming decade? We could start with Ben and then just move around.
1: So I guess I, I would think about it in two different tracks. One of them is how do we how do we handle the fact that climate change, unfortunately, is a reality? So how do we be more resilient? How do we create a more resilient environment, a more resilient economy, more resilient infrastructure? Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we've been putting uh, more and more resources into addressing sea level rise and flooding, wildfire, uh, trying to help uh, uh, you know put in place more resilient infrastructure. So that's one track. And then, of course, the other track is how do we do everything we can to make sure that we are leading the way, that we continue our leadership role in showing the world that we can and must, that we must and can play a significant role in reducing the climate change crisis, the severity of the crisis. And so that comes down to all of the challenges associated with make, you know, how do we transition off of a fossil fuel economy? How do we put it, you know, and, and what does that really mean? The infrastructure investments and the and the, the, the behavioral changes, everything from, the, you know, the type of products that we buy in the store to the sorts of transportation behaviors. And do we have the infrastructure in place to really effectuate that change? And then also, uh, how do we figure out a way to employ, you know, all those folks who are losing their jobs as a result of this transition? It turns out California is not just a great environmental leader. It's also a major oil producer. I think we produce about ten percent of the oil of the nation's oil in Kern County alone. There's a lot of offshore as well, and a lot of workers and jobs in that industry, and, uh, and, and a lot of workers and jobs in a lot of different polluting industries up and down our state. So our other big challenge here is how do we help uh, uh, you know, transition in a way that 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 brings people along, uh, both both the general public, but also all of those workers and all those folks who depend on those industries big challenges. Dominic, how do
0: you see this from a city perspective?
2: Well, I've got to say, you know, there are two sides to the same coin here with climate change. We've got wildfires and we've got drought and one affects the other. And so we're seeing more um, seasons of wildfire, more increase in drought. And the hotter it gets, um, the more we have to be concerned about our houses, um, our lifestyles, and our air quality. And so these two items, I think, um, are very, very important in thinking about, you know, why we need resilient systems, particularly here in California.
0: Gary, what about from the county perspective?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think we're working hard, of course, to to deal with these issues. And and Senator Allen raised a lot of good points, particularly around the transition of workers in in these industries. But, you know, the the big challenge, I've been working, I actually look back at my notes, I I wrote a climate action plan for the city of LA in 2001. So I think the biggest challenge we face is just the lack of urgency. We've been working on these things. We're we're, we're up to the the 26th meeting of the UN conference uh, On climate this year. Uh, That's a long time to be talking and not really acting. And we need to do a radical transformation of our economy. And that means our transportation systems and our buildings, and really moving those off of fossil fuels uh, to electricity. But the challenge there will be twofold. One, uh, as Senator Allen pointed out, the workforce, and we even have a workforce here in Los Angeles, of course, where we produce oil, both at the well and then refine it. But the other challenge, and it relates to what, what Dominique was saying, is our electric transmission system. Today, our transmission grid simply isn't adequate to, to deal with the electricity that, w- that we're trying to deliver to people every day. And we saw that last summer when we had uh, a heat storm and we, weren't, we, had to, we had to implement rolling blackouts so we need a if we're really going to transform the building sector and the transportation sector and rely more on electrification our biggest challenge is making sure that we have adequate capacity on the grid to to handle that increased load uh and of course while we're producing that electricity uh, re- renewably in a clean way dealing with things like, uh, as is referred to as the duck curve, overproduction in the midday and and a little bit of lack of production uh, as we transition into the evenings.
0: Uh, So, Senator Kamelager, Gary just talked about radical change. Are we ready for radical change?
4: In our minds, we are. But when we go to the store to make a purchase, when we are looking at our pocketbook, we're not. And the reality is, I think, is, you know, with the change in technologies, the advancement in technologies, but the continued hold on these issues by industry, instead of, you know, aggressively working towards uh, bringing price points down and advancing technologies to allow us to live the kind of life that we're all talking about, we're sort of lulled in continuing to live as we have been um, with this huge consumption and overdependence on um, plastic and on petrol produced products. And we so, so no, you know, and we have to do more than go to a movie and watch something crazy happen and think, oh my God, I never want this to happen to me. And then go and purchase a single use plastic container. Um, We also have to get righteous and real about the real intersection between labor and environmentalism. And until those two folks come to the table and leave, in partnership about what the outcome has to be, we will continue to be in this, have this death grip of paralysis around us as it relates to transformational aggressive change.
0: I think several of you alluded to something that for me is one of the biggest problems that we face. For a long time, people talked about climate change, carbon pricing, uh, all sorts of other measures, and very little attention was paid to the workers who were going to lose their jobs. Are we going to pay that attention? And what can we do to assure that they can
1: have a kind of fruitful life where they earn a decent wage? I think the answer is yes, Bob. They're forcing us to pay attention whether uh, whether some of the powers that be like it or not. There have been some several uh, important fossil fuel climate change related bills that have quite frankly been derailed in the California state legislature because of opposition from uh, the building trades unions, and so it's it's forcing a really difficult conversation that you know I think quite frankly it's going to be tough. Uh, I think it's ultimately because it's going to involve a lot of money. So I, I'm I'm also I'm quite frankly worried about the future of that conversation. I don't know how productive it's going to be, uh, at least in the short term, given where the tone is right now. And uh, but it's it's absolutely essential. I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. And and um, but I think that some of our friends over on the trade union side. Feel as though this climate change agenda is a well, you know, elite coastal elite agenda that doesn't really touch upon their communities. That and they don't believe that they they really in 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 some of the rhetoric about a just transition. uh, From their perspective, they've worked incredibly hard over decades and decades to build up strong collective bargaining agreements with the you know with oil refineries and extractors and other kind of old school energy uh, uh, companies. And and um, they're quite frankly really nervous. A lot of their guys are getting paid a lot of money. Uh, And they're really nervous about what the future holds uh, and and whether it really will include them. And they've got a lot of political clout, too. And um, I think we'll derail efforts, some of the bolder efforts that some of us have, uh, if we're not able to get their issues addressed.
0: It's it's interesting to me because the United Mine Workers are now in a conversation with the Biden administration to address precisely this issue. And President Biden seems very serious about doing this as part of an infrastructure bill so that people can transition from one kind of job to another. Does the state have a role in that, or the county or the city, or is that primarily a federal responsibility?
3: Uh, I think we all have a role, right? It, it's, it's not any one part of government's role, and the Board of Supervisors has actually given my office direction to, to start talking to folks about whether you want to call it a just transition uh, or something else. Uh, specifically around oil wells and how do we do we have the adequate workforce to properly cl- abandon to, to close those wells that exist in LA County and there are thousands of them and so we've brought labor to the table with frontline communities with environmental justice communities um, to begin those conversations uh, with the and, and with the oil industry as well and I'll say that it does take a lot to actually achieve a real transition. And we've never done a very good job of this in other places, except at a very specific facility. Today at Diablo Canyon, for instance, they're, they're going through that. But here we're talking about a transformational change across the, the industry. And so we do, uh, we need to have strong policy that, that the government is able to put into place that can actually help to transition workers from one industry to another. And L.A. Is, is fortunate that we have a multitude of industries here. We're still the largest manufacturing center in the United States. But that's not true in Kern County. So what it looks like in Kern County is very different. But it takes a lot of money, too, because what we're talking about is actually people who may be close to retirement, paying off for the rest of their term uh, and letting them retire early. But then for other workers, they're skeptical that retraining for some other job is going to work when they're they're not sure that other job is always going to be there. But we, and so those are two critical pieces. And, and actually, Professor Manuel Pastor from USC with Professor Minjin Shah has written extensively on this, and really lays out a, a framework for how we go about doing this in a in a structured, systematic way. And that's something that that those conversations we've started here in LA County already.
4: You know what Ben said is correct. When I think about what's going on in my district, we have a ton of we have Inglewood oil fields. We have a number of smaller oil um, oil fields and oil sites across the district, and the building trades—you know—are legitimate when they say we have folks that go um, to those sites and work. There are no clean, green energy sites in the district for us to immediately transition those workers from one space to another. And so, how do you talk about what that kind of investment and what building that kind of in- infrastructure is going to look like where the jobs already are? We have to define the alternative. And we also have to define the investment that is required for folks to see some reality in what the words just transition looks like. I mean, I'm hopeful with this governor's budget that came out even in January that talks about the billions of dollars that we're going to get in investment for um, for EV infrastructure, for example. And I think we're all hopeful that there'll be another infusion of cash coming from the federal government to help us sort of align some of the other issues that we're challenged with as it relates to water, as it relates to solar, as it relates to wind, et cetera.
2: This is such a hot topic. We've been working with Gary at the county um, in, you know, having these conversations to understand what are the needs of workers? How is industry responding? How are we as a local government going to support people? And it's good, I think, to understand that this might be a new herb, concept for California, but there are great models to look at, um, particularly, you know, as the transition away from coal um, took place. And so, you know, learning those lessons, having these conversations and making plans together on how to transition, not just the workers, but also the communities and the people that live Um, near these sites that are affected every day, is really important as a conversation to have with the state, with the county, with, with our other local jurisdictions and elected leaders. And it is going to be expensive, but it's going to be worth it.
0: Okay, I want to turn to a couple of subjects in order that you've already alluded to. First is money. California has a $20 billion budget surplus. It has a lot more resources coming in from the COVID relief bill that was passed. It will probably have even more money coming in if the Biden infrastructure plan passes. And there's also the possibility of a state climate resilience bond if it was adopted. What are the top climate infrastructure projects we should be spending those resources on?
4: You know, I was just thinking about what is it, the Jay-Z song, More Money, More Problems. So as we get more money in the coffers, you know, everyone comes with their list of priorities. And truth be told, many of them are. I mean, you know, we can spend a ton of time talking about healthcare. We can ton- spend a ton of time talking about education, transportation, housing. Um, and all of these are also things I think we should be talking about as we look towards what a green, clean California looks like. I think we need to focus on the grid how we fortify it, um, how it's able to work for everyone um, across all seasons, across all regions. I think we have to have an honest conversation about uh, transportation and what that looks like in rural areas and urban areas. You know, what are we doing with um, light rail, high-speed rail? Uh, What are we doing with these bookend projects? How are we working to get people out of cars um, and in a way that's sustainable how are we making sure that all of those discussions are rooted in equity so we're still not doubling or tripling down in wealthier communities or in whiter communities and not giving the same um, attention to poor communities um, and communities of color? I think we also have to have real conversations around what construction looks like. You know, how do we create toxic, free, emission-free, pollutant-free uh, buildings that don't cost, you know, a billion dollars to create? Then once again, are we incentivizing across the entire region, across the entire state? And then we've got to figure out a way to attack consumption because production is the thing that is killing us. And then in California, we have to respond to the wildfires. We've got to get that under control in a way that is manageable. um, Because if the, if the state doesn't fall off into the ocean because of an earthquake, We will burn up to a crisp because of the wildfires. And in the midst of all of that, we have got to find a way to bring clean air and greenness, greenscapes, um, back to this state across the entire state so that you're not driving six hours to see blue skies and green mountains. You can get a little bit of that wherever you are in the state. So a long list.
1: Obviously, this some of the stuff we talked about when we talk about money, you know, th- this is this this just transition that everyone talks about is not going to be cheap. There are a lot of, of of people at every level of the socioeconomic spectrum who are very vested in the status quo and getting them to transition is, is going to take money and resources. And so that's going to be a part of this. And I, I absolutely applaud. I think if anybody can help to thread this needle, it's Joe Biden. Uh, who's got very strong uh, relationships, and, 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 you know, uh, on, on the on the labor side, and also um, is really committed to doing something substantive on the climate side. Uh, so that's that's part of it. And then and then in general, it's it's just we got to build out so much infrastructure. We got to build out hydrogen, uh, you know, charging station infrastructure on the on the electricity side. Uh, we've got to create a more effective uh, a, a transmission system for the entire Western United States. Uh, we, we've got to we've got to we've got to do a better job. We got it. We got to both develop and then and then build out a, a strong charging energy storage infrastructure uh, on the electricity side. I mean, there's just so much infrastructure that needs to be built, and that of course you know provides for some real job opportunities for a lot of the same workers who uh, are currently very deep in the the fossil fuel world. The other thing, of course, it's a very interesting discussion. It's there's some controversy on the environmental side, but how do what do we do with the current Oil wells and, and you know is there is there a place for carbon sequester uh, carbon capture in those in those in those underground fields is that a good idea I don't know a lot of environmentalists are nervous about it but it does it does uh, it does find a, a, a you know it it it, it, it's a, it provides a, a tangible benefit uh, to the environment that will also um, help to keep some of these folks in business a lot of this ultimately is is not about putting Chevron out of business it's about changing Chevron's business model. To move them toward uh, toward toward greener energy and and energy uh, energy storage and all the rest, so that that I think has to be the the lens through which we look at this.
0: It's interesting because they're doing carbon capture pretty successfully in Scandinavia. The real question is whether we're going to do it here. But I want to turn to something else that you've all alluded to in one way or another, and that is the fact that we're apparently going to endure another drought this year. We've already endured it and we're going to have a big fire season. What's going on Dominic and Gary in Los Angeles to prepare for and mitigate the drought and the danger of fire?
2: Yeah, I don't know if uh, people were watching NBC Today show yesterday when um a reporter and the mayor went to tour the Hyperion wastewater treatment plant, but we've got some big goals to source At least 70% of our water locally by 2035. And so what this means is we need to upgrade our water recycling um, infrastructure. And so that's another thing we'd like to see, you know, federal dollars support is being able to have LA drinking recycled water by 2035. And I know, you know, some people are a little off put by that conversation, but, you know, across the country, our water resources are dwindling. There's not new water. And so we need to be able to treat it and then move it around the city so that people can drink it, et cetera, use it to its highest use. And um, other cities are already doing this around the world and around the country. So we need to make sure that we're able to provide, you know, clean, safe drinking water for all Angelinos. And then on the flip side, you know, we were just remember 2015 and that immense drought we were in, you know, it's about to be back and we need to really get serious about conservation and people across the city can take out, you know, turf, plant native plants, take shorter showers, all those things that we practiced really well. We saved uh, about 20 percent, shaved that right off our water use in 2015 and 2016. And so we need to return back to those good habits.
3: I I think we would, you know, the county, uh, the voters of Los Angeles County last year uh, approved Measure W, the Safe Clean Water Program. So now we have $300 million a year coming in to capture stormwater. And that is both to make sure that our surface waters are, are clean, but we can use that captured stormwater to recharge our local aquifers. And and that's exactly what we're doing with it. Um, And I think Dominique, you know, raised the good points. I come from the energy world where we talk about loading orders for deploying energy resources. And the the first priority is always conservation. Uh, And we've done a good job with indoor water use, but much less good uh, job on, on outdoor water. But then I think about, Again, thinking about jobs and if we're say looking at a transition of a workforce from fossil fuel industry, our water infrastructure is old it's uh it's in a multitude of agencies. Most people don't realize there are two hundred water suppliers in los angeles county l a d d b p of course serves uh forty percent of the population, but sixty percent of the population are served by in some cases very small purveyors that maybe serve, uh, you know, a 100 customers or something. And as we've seen with Sativa recently, uh, a lot of those systems just don't work very well. And while they may meet primary standards, that means that it's not uh, unhealthful. If you've got brown water coming into your home, you're not going to bathe in it. You're not going to wash your clothes in it. You're not going to cook with it. And so that's an environmental justice issue because these are, Primarily low-income communities and communities of color that are served by these dilapidated systems uh, that are out there spending money on bottled water that, that that that's part of the household income they simply don't have and, and water should be uh, should be should be clean and should be usable at everybody's tap and I think there's a tremendous opportunity for a for a jobs program there to actually uh, re re. Redo our water infrastructure. And I think that has to be part of drought planning too, because I'm sure a lot of those systems are just leaking like crazy.
0: Yeah. I'm intrigued by people's reluctance to think about recycled water, because of course, the truth is, nature recycles the water all the time. It's not as though we get new shipments of water that suddenly land on planet Earth and we're drinking water that no one's ever been near before. But I want to turn to something else. That you've alluded to, and that is buildings, because buildings can be a big source of CO2 emissions. What steps can developers take, and what should they be mandated to do to create energy efficient, low carbon structures? And in that, can we actually renovate existing buildings? We have so many of them.
1: I have a colleague, uh, David Cortese, who is a fantastic new member of the legislature from the San Jose area, who has come forward. So you're absolutely right, uh, Professor Shrum. It, buildings buildings are, are an enormous part of the problem. They represent about a quarter of California's greenhouse gas, human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. And so Senator Cortese has this bill, SB30, which establishes a California state building decarbonization plan. Uh, and the aim in the bill is to get all state-owned buildings carbon neutral by 2035. Of course, you know, when it comes to already existing buildings, we've got to, there's so much to do, but I think where we, one of the areas where we need to start is with you know, some of the low-hanging fruit. A major source of emissions are water heaters. So how do we put in place effective you know, programs so that with both big buildings and small buildings uh, and make the switch, they retrofit their homes and buildings with more energy efficient water heaters. Um, it's similar to the way we've, we've put in place programs to incentivize the move to solar. And so I think that could be the model that we that we uh, that we use as we as we get uh, people in existing buildings to start putting in place better, greener, lower emission infrastructure, such as in the area of water heaters.
0: Senator Kamlager, can bills like that pass or are they going to encounter huge opposition? Because after all, in terms of existing buildings, people aren't going to want to spend the money.
4: Yeah, they're going to be met with huge opposition. There were a number of bills that were in discussion. Uh, to be introduced this legislative session around how you decar buildings, how you get rid of um, non energy efficient appliances, you know how you move from gas to electric, and met with an iron thud and so it will all go back to what the just transition looks like and how you are going to ensure uh, that the same number or percentage of folks who are working now in the trades will be able to continue to do so with these new changes. But, you know, how do we incentivize? You know, how do we encourage a change to more sustainable materials? You know, how do we work with local jurisdictions to help them with some of their ordinances or regulations and some of their codes to sort of incentivize? I mean, this has to be all hands on deck as it relates to this, because there's, let me tell you something. As we are all figuring out how to build more housing, it makes absolutely no sense for us to uh, work as fast as we can to put more units on the market that are emitting the same degree or even higher amounts of emissions while we're simultaneously talking about how to green the state. So we have to not do that. But, you know, we're going to see what happens. I mean, Ben can tell you there have been some challenges on the Senate side with some of these bills uh, getting through.
0: Uh, why isn't it in the interest of, say, the building trades to set higher standards for new buildings? Because after all, they'll still be doing the work.
4: The trades want to work. They want to keep working. They want to make sure that their members have jobs and they want to make sure that their members' families are taken care of. IBW will tell you that they have an amazing facility in commerce that is all about solar and they are working as hard as they can because they want to install as many of those as possible. So I I don't want to disparage completely. And I do think folks are interested in what the new technologies are that are out there and how they can be employed on these sites. But if you have developers who say, it's not going to pencil out for me to do that, um, and so if I can't do that, you're not going to work, Um, then you see how this trickle down effect has on, you know, those memberships, um, and those, those union leaders, um, who ultimately want to make sure that their folks are able to feed their families and make sure that they have a place to live. So it becomes incumbent on us then to figure out how to work with industry to say, this is where we're going to go. I mean, I think the best sort of, um, tool we have or the best leverage we have is the market, you know, I mean, if you can harness the market. Then the industry will say, I'm going to do that because I'm very interested in making sure that I still have a consumer base. I am very interested in making sure that I am outmaneuvering my competitors. And I'm very interested in making sure that I still have a seat at the table with the state of California.
0: Okay, speaking of controversy, Mayor Garcetti's Green New Deal plan, as well as LA County's sustainability plan, one of the milestones for transportation is a congestion pricing study done by 2025 how are we going to get people to accept congestion pricing i mean it's been a huge fight in new york city and it's still unresolved how are we going to do it here in the most car dependent culture in the united states
2: we have to do it and you may have heard a different term for congestion pricing which is traffic reduction and who doesn't want traffic reduction Um, I think we remember the early days of the pandemic where if you got in your car, you could drive from, let's say, USC to the beach in, you know, 10 minutes flat. And so the point of the study is to understand, you know, how we reduce traffic, invest in transit infrastructure and mobility options that allow people to move around easily and with much less emissions. And, you know, there are about four different um, aspects that Metro is considering in this pilot. All of them are going to consider equity and the ramifications to communities in terms of implementing such a traffic reduction. And so, you know, it it affects you whether you're a person traveling through a zone um, to get to your house, to get to work, et cetera. And so, you know, if there are fees to be collected from such a project, it's important to make sure that they're reinvested in communities and um, that we're not exacerbating, you know, economic strife um, for people that happen to be near the traffic reduction zone.
3: I would add, actually, you know, there's a perception sometimes that that congestion pricing is a regressive measure Uh, and and I would reject that out of hand. I'd I'd say actually that the status quo is quite regressive, and if you're going to compare a congestion pricing program to the status quo, then you're not going to see those sorts of regressive impacts, and they don't even have to be regressive to begin with. But the, the idea and the way to do that is to take that equity lens around the use of the revenues and make sure that any revenues that come out of this program actually serve uh, people who use the transit system, so that there's a real alternative if you're going to to start to to reduce uh, or start to charge for for that. And 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 so it really is this sort of commingling of um, uh, trying to disincentivize an activity, which is the use of a single uh, occupant vehicle, while incentivizing. Uh, things like good, high quality transit services, uh, and, and bicycling infrastructure and free, free transit or highly subsidized transit. And if you roll those out at the same time, then you've set the table for behavioral change that will actually improve mobility. So I think that that's what's critical is to make sure that you're, you take the any revenues that might come out of it and actually apply them to the kinds of solutions you want to see. And in fact, that's uh, a that's very popular approach. When, when Washington State last year, as an example, or the year before, I think it was, was considering a carbon tax, they did a lot of polling uh, to determine how we should be using the funds from this carbon tax. And um, what polled the highest was actually spending all of that money on clean energy, transportation, and clean technologies, and just across the border in British Columbia, they have a carbon tax, and about half the revenues are used for those things, and half go back to the to individuals in terms of uh, a subsidy or a reduction on their income tax. That wasn't a, a popular choice. What's really you've got to take the revenues that come out of this to 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 drive the kind of change you want to see, and I think if you do that, then you've addressed the uh, any perceived regressive tendencies.
4: I think words matter. And I think messengers matter. We were talking a little bit ago about uh, water recycling. And years ago, we were talking about the same thing. And we said from toilet to tap. And that met with a dud. And no (laughs) one wanted to talk about it. Do you know what I'm saying? So as we talk about congestion pricing, I think it's also really important to be careful about the words and to be careful about the messenger. I, I, and I do think it's really important that we're honest about what it takes to live and work and survive in Los Angeles County. Folks are not going to want to take a bus, even though they do, or ride a bike for 25 miles to get from their job to their home, which may be very far away from one another because of the cost of living. So it's also about how do you build amenity and resource-rich communities, because that also is a great alleviation for the issue that we're facing as it relates to congestion and transportation. So, and, and, And when we are messaging out things, it's really important to be honest about the challenges that the average person is facing as they're trying to travail Los Angeles County.
0: I want to talk about the private sector and specifically our campus, USC. The Investment Committee of the Board of Trustees has announced that USC will be freezing new investments in fossil fuels and dissolving current fossil fuel investments over the next several years. Are there similar actions that other universities or non-governmental institutions should take to reduce the threat of climate change locally?
2: Sure. I want to say congratulations to the Board of Trustees because that was a bold move and it really, you know, sets the pace for others to follow. And um, I would say, you know, a great guide is Mayor Garcetti's executive directive number 25. It's called Leading by Example. And really anyone, any organization can uh, take cues from the executive directive where he talks about a um, uh, you know zero emission um, first policy when you are purchasing vehicles um he directs our Bureau of engineering to you know design and build clean buildings, carbon neutral buildings um He sets forth goals around zero waste for city hall and for other properties that we own and so there are a whole slew of things. Um, that you can change in your own operations, whether you're in the private sector, an NGO, et cetera. And I would also say the universities and the NGO systems are just wonderful messengers for delivering education, resources, and really reaching deep into communities. So um, continuing to, you know, provide those kinds of um, resources for people that really need it are are key roles for the universities and
1: the NGOs? It's actually fantastic to see investors starting to see investments in fossil fuels as a potential climate change related risk. It's, it, you know, partly because they recognize that there's going to be all these regulatory, you just look at the conference yesterday, uh, with Joe Biden and, and all those world leaders, there's obviously going to be, you know, global action to try to transition, uh, uh, you know, fossil fuel industries. And so that, that poses a risk to investors. In fact, I did a bill a few years ago, which requires our two big pension funds, CalPERS and CalSTERS, to disclose the risk that, and to discuss the risk that climate change poses to the value of fund assets, including, you know, as, stranding, stranded assets and, and, um, and just to consider that risk when making investments. And so I, that, that's, that's part of the story. Um, uh, you know, and then and then I think you know, there, there's a lot of other interesting things happening in this space. You know, I've got a, a, a couple bills that are making their way through. Senator, Senator Stern and Senator Weiner have bills that are seeking to get businesses to track their overall carbon footprint. Uh, a lot of businesses themselves are now stepping up to. You know, I think Amazon has pledged to be carbon neutral by 2040 uh, by using you know carbon neutral fleets or purchasing carbon offsets. Uh, so so there's a lot of interesting uh, work happening, and I think it's it's ultimately about. Us all really just taking a bigger picture look at how all of the actions that we take uh, interplay, including our investments, and 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 start either divesting or uh, or also pushing internally within within companies to start taking uh, you know greater action, greater climate action.
3: I would actually add that you know divestment is a great action, and and you, know, you should be congratulated on it, but. There's a much deeper set of uh, investment principles that can be brought to bear, uh, and, and in the county, we our own retirement system, uh, which is the the largest after Calsters and Calpers, has in- incorporated what are known as environmental, social, and governance prin- considerations or principles into their into their processes, and these follow kind of the UN uh, what's called principles for responsible investment, which. Really is a way of ensuring that your your investment decisions reflect the values of your organization, uh, and goes well beyond the, uh, the divestment. Uh, and I think that that's critical. And, and you know, this is not a this is not uh, in any way's contrary to your fiduciary responsibility. In fact, there's lots of empirical evidence that shows that uh, investment managers that do follow. Uh, so-called ESG environmental, social, and governance principles uh, have much gr- higher economic returns than than standard investment practices. So this is good not only for the organization from a financial standpoint, but also ensures that its money uh, and in, in the case of the county, a lot of the money uh, is going towards things that reflect our own values as a as an entity.
0: I think what I want to do here and now is turn to some questions from the people who are watching. The first is an anonymous question. Is the pollution near extraction sites worse than for houses lining the freeways? And should that be the next effort after
4: stand LA? So I don't see it as an either or. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's both bad. So yeah, I'm not really interested in, you know, binary discussions or choices um, because at the end of the day folks are dying uh, living next to the 710 just as much as they are either dying or contracting cancer living next to an oil field so we have to be able to you know walk and chew gum at the same time
0: so what do we do about that we have so many houses so many structures that abut the freeways abut major boulevards
1: how do we how do we deal with that problem it's part of why we're trying to transition toward lower polluting vehicles, up, you know, both, both heavy and, and light. I mean, you know, I think the vision that we all have is that, that you know, by the time uh, my kid is applying to USC, that uh, we'll, we'll have a significant, you know, far, far more of our vehicles, uh, if not a majority of them, will, will be zero emission uh, and, and low polluting. And that, that will certainly uh, go a long way toward addressing you know, freeway and boulevard uh, related uh, proximity pollution.
3: Yeah, and we have to remember that both of those, whether it's the freeways or oil sites, really are environmental justice issues. That this, these are a result of historic legacy racist practices. And, and those sites were put there deliberately in communities of color. And that we've got to address that legacy. We have to acknowledge that legacy and, and bring that as part of our decision making to bear and And the Senator's right that zero emission vehicles will get us part of the way, but we've also called for in our sustainability plan uh no new construction to eliminate uh, sensitive uses from five hundred feet of a of a of a freeway so that we're not putting schools or hospitals or homes uh, near a freeway and at the same time, we've got to expand the setback distances from Existing oil wells, and frankly, we shouldn't be drilling any new wells. But if we are drilling new wells, we need to have much greater setback distances there as well.
4: And you also have to recognize, even if you have um, goods being transported um, in an emission-free truck, the fact of the matter is, you're still transporting product. And what is it? You know, is it more plastic? Um, is it more junk that we don't need in our waste stream? So, what can we do to make sure that we're producing locally? You know, so that. Well, you know, you still want to have cars because you want to have folks driving them and all that. But you, you also want to limit the production or at least the purchase of it from so far away so that you're still participating in this really sort of pernicious and insidious, you know, dance called pollution.
2: Yeah, on Monday,
4: actually, Mayor
2: Garcetti announced at our state of the city a moratorium on permits for any new drilling um for oil or gas uh, within city limits and as Gary mentioned we're also in a similar process of considering setbacks and um i mean the long the long and the short of it is you know fossil fuel um production is on its way out the mayor has said it and um you know over the next couple of decades we're going to have to work through this just transition like we talked about at the beginning of the call because we have to eliminate fossil fuels, and uphold Paris.
0: I have another question from someone whom I personally know and want to acknowledge as a terrific student, uh, Jake Ettinger. Beyond policy changes, how can we contribute to a culture change in LA to promote a more sustainable lifestyle? That is composting, using public transportation, eating less meat, flying less, all of those kinds of measures.
2: I want to invite everyone to visit laforever.org. It's our brand new um, website, actually, that just debuted yesterday. And it tells you, you know, the vision of Los Angeles and how we move towards our five zeros, which are zero waste, zero wasted water, zero carbon transportation, um, zero carbon buildings and a zero carbon grid. But it tells you actions that you can take and how to access those resources from the city. We have a ton of incentives um, for doing the right thing. And sometimes it's hard to find them. So that's why we launched this website, um, LA Forever. So, you know, the motto is a sustainable LA is for everyone forever. And so we're connecting people with information that they want in an easy and relatable way right there online.
0: Okay, I have an anonymous question here, uh, and we haven't talked about this at all, really. What is agriculture's responsibility in this area in terms of climate and in terms of water conservation?
4: Well, it's huge. They consume a lot of water. They use A lot of land they are heavily involved in um, the legislative discussions and even the budgetary discussions that we are having and ultimately they are responding to a market so they are there because we want them to be there because we are buying the pistachios the almonds um and the cantaloupe and because when we're not folks across the pond are doing it in far greater numbers uh than we are they also receive great (laughs) a great amount of subsidies from the federal government and from us to keep going and they employ a huge workforce uh, that is heavily dependent in so many ways on their existence and so you know I wish that we could figure out a way to solve these problems in a silo uh, without interrupting some other aspect of it but the fact of the matter is all of these issues are almost Jenga-like in the fact that they're so interrelated um, to other issues Um, and cost pressures that impact so many communities.
0: So how do we achieve that water conservation?
4: At the end of the day, I mean, I think we have to have a real conversation with ourselves um, as consumers about how we're living um, and how we want to live. I turn on the tap and let it run for seven minutes when I'm only washing one glass. I'm washing small loads of laundry multiple times during the day when I'm, now, I'm not doing this, but I'm just saying this as an example. (laughs) Don't really do this at all. But if you take those small examples and you blow them up, um, to families, to businesses, to industries, then you see, you know, it, I mean, the fact that we're in a mega drought right now, um, and then we're also trying to make sure that we're, um, supporting economic recovery for, ag that has suffered so much actually from a workforce um um space because of covid uh means that it's not just about sort of want water conservation and how you're asking them to change their business model and where they're going to get that water from but then you're also having to make sure that folks are still able to work that they're able to live that those businesses are able to thrive and that they're able to employ folks ben your thoughts because you've been
1: i certainly agree with everything that. that- Senator Kamler had to say, I, I, I guess I would just also say that that we need to do more to push the agricultural industry uh, toward, toward lower water usage uh, agricultural techniques. If you go around the world, go to Australia, go to Israel, uh, they, 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 they've they been able to find ways to produce uh, uh, you know, similar levels of crops to what they were before, but with much less water because they really... Implemented much better technology, drip irrigation, and a whole slew of, of of types of technology. I actually went on a tour with leaders from the Farm Bureau in, Aust- in Australia to look at some of the things that they've done there because they had terrible droughts and they had to figure out a way to deal with this. And of course, in Australia, they decided to do something that we haven't been willing to do, which is to actually create a a, a commodity market for water where they set aside at a certain portion of their water for 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 per, for human use, individual use, and then the rest of the water uh, is in a is in a is basically in a market. And um, you can go online right now. Anyone can find out exactly what the river and reservoir levels are of of any uh, of the major water bodies in Southeast Australia. Uh, In California, unfortunately, we're still stuck with some common law era water rights uh, rules that most of which date back at least culturally to the UK, uh, which is, you know, fantastic place, but they have a lot more rain. Right than we have here in California. So the idea that we, so their water rights laws are so based on the idea of plentiful water, uh, and and you know I gotta say we we we've got to take a long hard look at our water rights uh, rules. Tough tough conversation and there's all the the powers that be within ag, uh, powers that be because they've had so much access to water. Um, but, um, you know, at some point, you know, Australia had similar political pressures as well, and they had to rip off the bandaid because it just was simply untenable. Um, it's such a problem that we're having massive subsidence in the Central Valley where people are drawing more and more water from the ground and the land is literally sinking and causing a whole slew of concomitant issues associated. Uh, there was some work that Senator Pavley did in that area this, with Sigma, the, the Groundwater Management Act. And AG kicked in screen and it didn't go far enough from my perspective, but um so th- this is a, this is quite frankly a really tough a tough political battle, but I think one that we're going to have to have at some point because um and as I say, other jurisdictions have found a way to do it in a pro-ag, pro ag uh, pro pro water conservation manner. It's just going to take you know, forcing some folks to the table.
2: I think it's important that farmers understand their water use. I understand from um, a lot of farmers out in the Ventura area that for the first time, you know, over the last couple of years, they're getting water meters and they're actually having to pay for the water that they're using. Um, So there's a, a part of this that has to do with, you know, economics and being aware and being charged for what you use in a fair manner.
1: Yep. And by the way, then you're going to be much more likely to be on the lookout for leaks. And for all sorts of inefficiencies, uh, when you actually have there's some consequence associated with having a leak for so many farmers and for so many consumers, to be honest, there just haven't been enough consequences. And so people people don't put in the necessary repairs to ensure that their water is really being utilized efficiently.
0: Well, you know, I've been in Israel because I did some campaigns there and the drip agriculture is amazing. And they get the same yields as you get from constantly spraying water around it's it's very interesting. We have a last question here and I think it's a great question from Sophia Traversi. How can students best communicate our concerns with our local and state representatives? I think that's in a, there's a whole generation of activist students now who care deeply about climate change. How can they have an impact?
3: Yeah, it's it's absolutely critical and I, and I, and as somebody who's been working in this field for a long time Actually, having youth voices come out and demanding action is, is so important and so inspiring. Uh, you know, the, the we've, we're working to create a youth climate commission in the county. I know the city has one, um, to really give voice, uh, to, uh, young activists, uh, and make sure that they're part of the decision making system because quite frankly, they're the ones who are going to suffer the, The worst consequences of of a changing climate, the rest of us will pass off this mortal coil, but there'll be plenty of folks uh, in the generations to come that are going to see real serious impacts of climate change. And because of that, they're the most motivated and and it's heartening to me as somebody who's worked in this field for a long time to actually see that generation coming coming forward and, and making the noise that they're making.
1: I, I would just say how important it is for people to get involved in politics. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but, um, but, but but ultimately we need younger people pushing their elected officials, showing up at meetings, getting involved with clubs and organizations that, that are engaged in advocacy, holding elected officials, quite frankly, accountable for the sheepish votes that they cast from time to time uh you know to, to uphold the status quo there, there's a whole infrastructure in sacramento and washington and downtown la that is funded by special interest groups and corporate interests and other interests who push the legislature or the city hall or or the, or the board of supervisors or congress in their direction we need more people power uh to right that ship and that really ultimately takes advocacy and activism but also um you know, uh, getting involved, like interning for for a for a legislator or for a you know local city council member, and getting to know how the process works from the inside. Um, getting involved with you know your your you know a, a local environmental advocacy organization or or you know a party uh, advocacy organization to to learn from the activists, but also use the the good name of the organization and to to harness your energy and use it to push. There's some great groups out there that are working on climate action from Sunrise to Sierra Club to NRDC to CalPerg. I mean, so many organizations, and it's a great way to harness that energy and take that energy directly to decision makers and hold some of those decision makers feet to the fire.
4: I have a great relationship with actually USC Dems, and I try to meet with them on a regular basis. So I would encourage that. Uh, Internships are great if you're doing um, papers or if you want to, You know, work with an office and say, Hey, can I help you with an impact study? Um, that's super great to do. Most offices like mine will say yes. And I would encourage folks who are interested in climate change to not just focus on climate related organizations, but work with your criminal justice folks, work with your education folks, work with your transportation folks, you know, um, to help them see the intersection between climate change and all of these other things, because you don't want folks just talking about how to put more units on the market if they're also not talking about how to make them green. You don't want to talk about how to educate a child if you're not talking about what those structures are now going to look like and how teaching needs to reflect, you know, the space that we're in now. So think outside of the box.
1: The revolution's intersectional. That's right. (laughs) Dominique.
4: Thank you. Yeah, um, Mayor
2: Garcetti instituted a youth council for climate action right here in LA. It's in its second year. We actually have multiple USC students participating, and it is a great way to connect with like-minded people, to be able to tell your story, to be able to get connected to green jobs. So I just encourage um, people to let your voice be heard and find your place here in LA.
0: Okay, I think we're going to wind this up. I want to thank our panelists senators and sustainability officers. And I hope that by next year's Earth Week, when we do this again, we'll see the kind of progress that shows us that we're really on the right track. We need to do a lot more. That's obvious listening to this. I learned a lot from it. I hope everybody else did. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter, at USCPOL Future, that’s USCPOL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and visit our website for upcoming programs.